The What The If podcast is supported by the Unemployed Philosophers Guild with Freudian slippers and other political and literary gifts. You can find them in New York City at the Union Square Holiday Market, but everywhere around the world, you can find them at upguild.com. The Unemployed Philosophers Guild. The unexamined gift is not worth giving. Welcome to What The If. I am Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker. And another extremely awesome show coming up in just a moment. Let me bring in real quick, we're going to get to our exciting guest. But first, my co-host, Professor Matthew Stanley from New York University. How are you, sir? Oh, oh, oh that's me. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it uh, uh, cognito ergo sum? Is that? Just, well, I don't know the Latin for when someone says your name, you appear, but that'd be cool. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> uh, and uh, did you have a nice Thanksgiving here in the United States? We had a holiday called Thanksgiving. Uh, it was gluttonous as um, as prescribed. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. As America should be. Mm-hmm. We also have a very special guest with us this week. Bob King, amateur astronomer, author, and photojournalist. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, thank you. You are joining us from Duluth, Minnesota. I am. I'm down here in my basement, sitting at the computer, <laughs> joining you and having a good time. Just hiding from the snow. <laughs> you mentioned you're sitting under two feet of snow. Yes, it's right above me. And it's uh, it took a long time to get rid of from the driveway. Yesterday, I spent about an hour just on my garage roof, removing three feet of snow Whoa. because oh. it had drifted up there. So it was just it was a ton of work, but it's great exercise. Now, I do have to ask the the media hype about the weather drives me insane when it's like ridiculously <laughs> unjustified. So there was like, you know, big snowstorm in the Midwest, which seems to me in November, not unusual. Is that true? Or was this an unusual amount for you guys? Uh, this was a larger amount than usual, but it seems like everything is sort of being hyped these days. Everything is so overcovered. So I can understand how you would exactly why you would think that. Uh, but yes, we did get a little more of unusual. So it was a big storm and it kind of shut down the city for a couple of days. So wow. yes, it, it was bigger than the usual storm. I think we got about 22 inches total. All right, then. <laughs> it did prevent me from going out of my driveway to do any observing because I love to go out and look at the night sky. And I have a place in the country where I drive to and set up a telescope. So uh, but now the roads are open. So we're all good. Right on. Right on. You mentioned you are you are amateur astronomer, author, and uh, you had a photojournalism photojournalism career. But you also do now with your amateur astronomy, you are an astrophotographer as well. Yes, I do. I, I uh, love to take scenes of the night sky, you know, with constellations or bright comets. I tend to, I guess I do wide angle astrophotography, it's called, not a lot through the telescope, uh, except by using the cell phone. The cell phone's an incredible tool with the telescope, especially when it comes to photographing Jupiter and the bright planets and the moon. The moon is unbelievable through a cell phone. Just put it right up to the eyepiece. And you've got yourself what looks like a professional photograph. It's superb. Wow. wow. So no special attachment. You just hold it there. You can Well, you can buy a little attachment to hold the phone in place. But no, you don't need anything special. You just hold it right over the eyepiece. And it produces a large image. So you can see the craters really clearly and all of the lunar seas and mountain ranges. Um, a lot of times if I set up a telescope for public use, I will just do it for people to look at the moon and then help them get a picture with their with their smartphone. That's awesome. So take a selfie with the moon. Yes, they love it. And then they post it on Facebook. You know, I tell them they're an astrophotographer now. And they are. Yeah. <laughs> you have a book out called Urban Legends from Space. Tell us the full title of that, because we, we love, we are big fans here of book subtitles. The longer, the oh, better. Good. Well, that's a special taste, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> the urban legends from space, the biggest myths about space demystified. Full title. 
How, how many are there? There's like 20 or something in the book. In the book, I think there's like 50, I believe oh. 51. Something like that. Wow. So yeah. if you feel like going to any of the, any of the others, I'm, I'm here for you. The one we're going to do today is What the If? A planet from beyond came too close to the Earth. What if we got grazed? What if there was a planetary drive-by? How would we fare? The name of the object of the particular urban legend that you take up is what? Uh, it's called Niburu. N-I-B-U-R-U. Niburu. Niburu. And do you know where that name comes from or that word? Uh, yes, it's, uh, I guess, ancient Sumerian name, and it ah. refers to many things from back then, but uh, it has to do with the sky, possibly a planet, possibly a position in a sky that a planet might cross like a solstice or an equinox, and might even refer to Marduk, a, a great god. So it does refer to many different things, but it is heavenly, yes, so there is a celestial connection. Now, Marduk, is that related to Matt Stanley has a f famous, legendary holiday party every year? <laughs> Indeed, we have a Zagmuk, which is the Babylonian winter solstice celebration, which uh, involves Marduk escaping from uh, the clutches of Tiamat. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's great. <laughs> well, that's the first time I've heard of a party like that. <laughs> it is not well known. It be some time. I would love to come. Yes, and if the party's not successful, then uh, what happens? I will hurl a planet your way if it is not successful. <laughs> if, if I don't get an invitation, Nibiru is coming. <laughs> <laughs> what I, I'm curious about, the first time you read it, what grabbed you about it the most? And then just give us a little introduction for those who don't know. What is this? Well, mostly I just saw, I saw Nibiru being referred to online as a planet that was going to be coming close to the Earth or striking the Earth. And I thought, well, where where does this come from? And so I looked it up and found out about the book by a fellow named Jeremy Stitchin, who wrote about this uh, ancient Sumerian so-called planet, and saw that people, especially, again, online, social media, were conflating it with just about everything and getting worried. I started getting questions on my blog about whether Nibiru was actually going to strike the Earth, this ancient... Yep. Sumerian object and I said no there's no evidence for this at all it comes from a myth and there's no need to worry about it but uh, it just keeps popping up I think the most recent time that it really came back was in 2012 during the Mayan long count calendar scam or whatever you like to call it do you remember that where the world was supposed to end because Nibiru was coming back and of course as is usual with these situations the date always passes and nothing happens. And then a new date is cast out. Well, if it didn't come now, it'll come in 2000, whatever. But of course, at least for me, it's never going to come. And if it does, if anything like that were to happen, astronomers would be able to see it and detect it long before it got here. And of course, there is no evidence for any planet that either passed by our planet closely or is on the way. Uh, one of the things that you would see immediately is that uh, Nibiru, anything that large like that, would soon either be kicked out of the solar system or it would disrupt and change the orbits of the current planets. And again, we have not seen that. It's an interesting myth. It's a great story. It is a great it's a yeah that's and that's what these I think that's the fascination that people find in it. Could it be true? Is it possible? So does the myth get detailed enough to postulate things like orbital distances? Not that I've seen in a myth, no. Yeah. Uh, I think it just becomes a word, sort of a meme out there that people latch onto. I've even seen, and I bring this up in the book, people take a cell phone, they point it at the sun, and in their photographs, you can get this too, you'll see this little bright spot caused by an internal reflection with the lens. Mm -hmm. And I've seen these posted online as, is this a sighting of Nibiru? 
Uh-huh. And I and not and, and the thing is, I think people sometimes have good intentions when they do this, and they just don't know what they're looking at, and they're reaching for an explanation. So, uh, although my first thing is to, you know, you almost want to think, oh my gosh, how can you, you know, you're you're not being very observant, whatever. But uh, I think they just don't know enough about basic science or even cell phone use to realize that. Oh, wait a minute. I don't see that with my eye. That's something that's introduced by the camera. But yeah, so it does get conflated with a lot of different things, including that on a cell phone. That's interesting. I, I will say it is a sign of, it is a, a little bit of the positive aspect of human nature that people are at least w- willing to warn us. I don't want to discourage yes. people. If you see a planet coming, you know, we'll, we'll report it to the authorities. Yeah, or at least tweet something. <laughs> yes, at least tweet something. In the very, very that, that's how it, it is with everything nowadays. Yeah. Uh, but no, a lot of it is. I really believe, and and these, and the book goes through several different myths like this. Is that at the heart of some of these is preservation? It's preserving the species against a threat. When people perceive a threat, they sometimes imagine the most fantastic things or the worst. And so it mentally prepares us to deal with danger, kind of the fight or flee instinct. I mean, I'm in the woods all the time looking at the night sky. And you know how it is when you're in the forest and you hear a mouse moving through the grass. It sounds like a very large animal. And you flick on your light as your laser defense weapon thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be ready for this. One, of course, is just a mouse. Yeah, when I was growing up and watching In Search Of, narrated by Leonard Nimoy, which was a fantastic show, but full of weird paranormal and mysteries like Bigfoot, um, I uh, had asked for and been given a uh, cassette recorder, tape recorder, for my birthday. I think I was eight. And I remember, you know, going out after it had snowed. In fact, I was growing up in Maryland went out in the backyard and there were gigantic like claw like feet but like 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 dinosaur like a terrorist tyrannosaurus had walked through our backyard wow <laughs> and so i did a whole report just into my tape recorder as pretending i was on the radio but later learned that it was that kind of thing can be caused by just like a rabbit a very small animal but as the snow melts it can make the foot- footprints a lot bigger so Oh, that's weird. Yeah, exactly. And that really goes, you know what, that goes to the heart of the book, which is for us all to be encouraged to become better observers of nature. I think people don't pay enough attention to the natural world. And so when they do see something, it's quite easy to jump to a conclusion, don't you think? It could be this, it could be that. But Mm -hmm. if you know the world and you know rabbits, that's yours is a fantastic example. If you know that that can happen, then the next time you see it, you're like, ah, I know what that is. And, you know, some people, I've, some people I might say that that takes the mystery out of things. And by gosh, we love mystery, don't we? But to me, a natural explanation is far more interesting. I like the real aspect of things because it's not something humans can cook up. It's as if we are the students and nature is teaching us something about itself. And the more observant we become, the fewer bizarre phenomenon, I guess you could say, that we might see. For instance, UFOs, that's another topic of the book, many of those are natural phenomena. And I think if people knew more and studied nature more, that they would find what they do see more interesting than so-called UFOs. Even though, okay, let's say, I want to see a UFO someday. Me too. I really do. Yeah. You too. I actually, I have, I have seen UFOs, you and, have seen- but then, but then, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because, and, and then we'll get to our scenario, but um, it's inter- It's a really good point that people point out, they get excited. And, and I think part of it too, yes. is you get attention and you get excited, but you are excited by mysteries and they don't know. And I think they don't know how, but they also don't have the motivation for whatever. It just doesn't occur to them. I think if they didn't grow up with some kind of impulse, they don't investigate, you know, like. That would be the next step. Well, investigate. Instead, yes. they just sort of ask the scientist to immediately validate it or give them an absolute proof, even though there they would, 
yeah, anyway, they, they, they prefer the mystery. So the, the thing is, that's the whole concept of this show. What if we, we get to run with fanciful, imaginative concepts and turn it into, just like you said, Bob, a teachable moment? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to say, what the if Niburu has its eyes set on us? It's coming toward us. Um, and uh, what now everything from now on is scientific. So let's say this actually happened. What would be the very first indication? It sounds like, in fact, it may very well be an amateur astronomer that sees such a thing. Is that right? It was spotted as a dot. Yes, exactly. As everything begins in the, in, in the sky, it begins as a dot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes my wife says, what are you looking at that again for? Isn't it just a dot? And I go, yes, it is a dot, but I love seeing this dot again. And maybe I'll <laughs> a really good dot. about yeah. the dot. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great thing. Well, the pale blue dot, that's very, yeah. Very yes, well, it does. I, it, you can always invoke Carl Sagan at any moment you want. I really enjoy it. <laughs> <sighs> So is there a likely place where uh, Nibiru could have been hiding such that it hadn't been spotted to this point? Well, it's very, very unlikely. We've sent up quite a number of space telescopes that have, have looked and surveyed the sky in various wavelengths of light, including infrared. Um, a planetary body would certainly give off infrared light and most likely also regular visible light. And nothing has been seen. And again, like you brought up, um, Philip, an amateur is also, an amateur might possibly be the first person to see it. Amateurs discover comets. They also discover asteroids. They do incredible work. And so, yes, whoever would see this thing, this scenario, it would first appear in some kind of a survey, I suspect, most likely a professional robotic telescopic survey, such as uh, what they carry on at PANSTARS at the observatory at mm-hmm. uh, Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Uh, they would see it as, a, as a, a slow-moving dot, and its orbit, it would be studied for a little while as it moved along its orbit, and they would be able to determine its orbital characteristics and then make an orbital prediction and say, oh, here we have an object. It's on such and such a path. It's going to pass so close to the sun and the earth. And then we would go, huh, this planet is headed directly for the earth. How did that happen? <laughs> so that's a possible scenario. That would be an but interesting no- orbit that they detected. In other words, it would, it would have very little horizontal motion across the sky and a whole lot of just you know, getting bigger and bigger over some yes, period of time. Especially as it got closer and closer, it would just look bigger. Yeah, it would just become a brightening dot. Although the closer an object gets to the Earth, unless it's a direct hit, uh, its apparent motion in the sky becomes greater. So it would slide off to the side or that side and rapidly. You can imagine this, right? Such as when a comet approaches the Earth, it, it just moves bit by bit at first across the sky. And then as it gets closer, all of a sudden, the comet is moving like one degree, two degrees, three degrees a day, just because of proximity. There is a comet coming. We, we uh, Matt and I did an episode a little while back, which uh, you can find all our episodes on our website, whatif.com, or on whatever app you might be using to listen to the show. You can you can go scroll back through the earlier episodes. We did one uh, about the, co- the current comet that's coming by. Actually, Bob, you can remind me of the name. And this current comet that had never been seen before was first spotted um, as other discoveries have been done by an amateur astronomer i think is that is right? it the extrasolar comet mm-hmm. yeah uh, do you know the name it's this it's the crisp the one that's coming now yeah the extrasolar one i'm blanking on oh that. i see oh i'm sorry i was thinking um, i'm sorry i just got stuck in the solar system guys oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah i've got to expand to the interstellar yeah. mode here give me a second Yes, uh, that's Comet 2i Borisov. 2i, I I love it. Uh, The I for interstellar. My gosh, yes, Borisov. Fantastic discovery. And I've been eager, eagerly hoping I'd be able to see it through my telescope, but it's still very, very faint yet. But yes, it passes closest to the Earth this month. So it's, it's, um, but it's still, you know, it's, it's like twice the distance of the Earth from the sun. And it is, so it's faint. Uh, and it's moving at the moment still pretty slowly. 
But yes, definitely on an orbit, it's going to miss us by a long shot and sadly, probably never coming back. Mr. Borisov or Dr. Borisov? Gennady. Gennady, Gennady. Borisov. Yeah. Was he a known, like, was he someone who was known in the community prior to this, do we know? Or? Yes, he was. He was. Uh, he is an amateur astronomer, and he also builds his own telescope. So he built the telescope that he used to discover this comet. He used to, obviously he found it photographically, not visually. Ah, okay. But uh, Gennady Borisov, wonderful guy, and what a thrill for him to have this comet come by, and also for us to learn about interstellar comets to see something beyond the solar system. And guess what? You've heard the news about the comet, right? What it's made of. Uh, it turns out it's very much like a comet we would see in our own solar system as far as color and a composition. So that's interesting, I think. Is Nibiru likely to be a rocky planet like the Inners or some kind of gas giant variation? Well, given that it doesn't exist, uh, yeah. we well, can suppose any composition so. you like. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but if it if it has an orbit that brings it into the, well, it really could be anything, but if it's in the outer solar system, in the outer solar system past the frost line where ices condense into hard substance, or pardon me, where uh, water condenses into a, a solid, uh, then I would say if we were to make up a composition that it would be icy or a mixture of ice and rock because many okay. bodies in the outer solar system are composed of equal or approximate amounts of those things together mixed together that's a fascinating concept an ice you know an ice covered planet like uh, maybe like the moon like europa let's say or any any of the moons of jupiter yeah. or any of the moons of mm -hmm. outer the outer solar system an ice planet that comes closer to the earth will actually likely start melting yes um i think i even brought that up in the book because if it really is that distant it would likely be icy and then coming close to the earth and the sun the sun's heat would vaporize those ices and so it would actually begin to appear cometary if we're going along for the fun of it ah, okay yep. and comets are one of my most favorite things to look at so i would definitely put the telescope on niburo in a second <laughs> if it existed and i would follow it all along uh, when it was forecast to come back, I think it was in 2003 and then again in 2012 with the Maya calendar, Mayan calendar mania. Uh, if anybody had been looking because of the proximity, they would have seen it easily in an amateur telescope too. And it would have been picked up in a survey. And it is nothing like that has ever been picked up in a survey. And again, bottom line is on Nibiru, if a real planet came winging in towards the Earth from the outer solar system somewhere, um, and it was on an orbit that was somehow different from the normal planets, uh, its orbit would be radically changed over time. And it would be knocked out of the solar system probably by Jupiter, or it would alter the orbits of the current planets. And we have seen no evidence for that. Now, Matt, you, you, you know there's a similar... Um story i remember i had the fortune to sit in on one of your awesome classes at nyu there what was the what was that myth it seems very similar to this kind of thing of, of a planet coming to the earth oh are you thinking of uh emmanuel velikovsky's yes. books yes yeah so this velikovsky was this interesting character back in the 50s and 60s um who decided that uh uh all, essentially all ancient myths were literally true so he wanted to include the bible and greek myths and babylonian myths and wanted to sort of combine them all in some scientific way wow if they were all true that would be <laughs> very crowded well, this is why it's an interesting book so he writes yeah. this book called worlds in collision uh, so he starts with uh so the the greek myth of um uh, aphrodite coming from zeus's head she, she springs fully formed from the head of Zeus. So he decides if that's literally mm -hmm. true, then the planet Venus, which is associated with Aphrodite, must have come out of the planet Jupiter, which is associated with Zeus. Um, so he tells the story in which uh, Jupiter is, is e or excuse me, um, Venus is ejected from Jupiter by mysterious means and goes hurtling around the solar system. 
has a near miss with the Earth when its atmosphere leaves behind some um, hydrocarbons that fall from the sky at just the right time for the wandering Jews in the desert to eat them. Uh, the manna. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then Venus eventually settles down in its present orbit. So, so Venus has an edible atmosphere. Well, that's right. This is, it raises many extraordinary <laughs> questions. Uh, and there's, there's a sense in which this is, this is the book that gets... Carl Sagan interested in popularizing science because he's so he's so outraged by the scientific implausibility of the story that he organizes this conference on pseudoscience. That's uh, and if, if you want to know more about this, um, a friend of mine named Michael Gordon wrote a book about the Velikovsky affair. Uh, you should go check it out. No, that is fascinating because. Uh, the, again, like we were talking earlier, it's that story, the power of a story, even though so much of it is completely invented, to wrap us in and to make us fascinated. And that's a fascinating story. I think sometimes uh, that sense of fairy tales becoming true into adulthood, not that we shouldn't read fairy tales, but some of us like to continue believing that such things are true. The other fascinating thing about that story is that it inspired Carl Sagan. So you never know the effects of what a story, true or not, might have on other people. It can inspire you in an opposite direction to try to disprove it and talk about pseudoscience, for instance, which is, again, the topic of the book in so many ways. Uh, the other thing about planets approaching the Earth, uh, we of course, we don't see any planets doing that, Nibiru or otherwise, but... There are asteroids. I think it's like up to about 30 per week that are being discovered through all of these different robotics surveys. Whoa. Wow, near Earth, 30 a week of near-Earth asteroids that are being discovered. And some of them are potentially hazardous asteroids. And you hear about some of those in the news. A lot of times online you'll see a, a headline. Someone's looking for a good story and go like, well, here's an asteroid that's going to approach Earth. It's only going to be half a lunar distance away. And as, as it turns out, um, then, of course, they will write, and I've been guilty of writing about some of these close approaching asteroids. They always miss the Earth so far. We know inevitably within 10,000 years, 100,000 years, there will be a strike because we have seen previous strikes. But the fascinating thing about asteroids is that they come near the Earth. They can even move, get as close as like the um, geostationary satellite belt that can fly just a couple thousand miles over our heads and still miss the planet because, and this is something a lot of people don't think about, they have so much forward velocity. They are not aiming directly at the Earth. They're close to the Earth, but they're moving at tens, many tens of thousands of miles an hour, so they miss us, as do the vast majority of these things. Sometimes, sometimes small ones hit us, um, and they land as meteorites, as the meteorite fall in Chelyabinsk, uh, Russia, uh, several years back, is a good example of. But uh, they rarely strike the Earth. It really has to be a direct or near-direct hit. The Earth does not pull in asteroids, which is another common myth. Instead, what really happens is that the Earth's gravity warps the asteroid's orbit. Now, granted, the asteroid might take a little energy from the Earth in the past, but as the Earth, which is the bigger player here, an asteroid comes by, and when it leaves, it's on a slightly different orbital path due to the powerful gravity of our planet acting on such a small object. Many of these things are like 300 feet across, quarter mile across, and such. I just want to take a moment and thank our, our sponsors who are really helping us. Uh, we have been giving away their puppets to our guests this wonderful company that are friends of mine called the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. And now they're actually buying ads, and I really appreciate that from them. So they wanted me to let you know, the What the If podcast, that's us, is supported by the Unemployed Philosophers Guild with finger puppets of geniuses and lots of political and also literary gifts. If you happen to be in New York City, they're going to be down at the Union Square Holiday Market, all uh, holiday season here anywhere, wherever you are in the world, and year-round on the web at upguild.com. Use the code WTIF, 
That's my favorite four-letter word. Use the code WTIF on the website, and you'll get a special 10% discount on anything you buy. The Unemployed Philosophers Guild, and as they say, the unexamined gift is not worth giving. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing about these stories is it tells us a little bit of how people do uh, understand science to the to the very small degree. Maybe they do, and or or mm-hmm. what what they find confusing. And for instance, um, we think of everything as being flat. Like we think of the solar system. I think people definitely envision it as a disk, but we only think about things moving within the what we would call the ecliptic or the orbit of all the planets. And yet, is it true uh, that the asteroids are actually all within the same plane? Like that's that's how we could tell, for instance, that Oumuamua, the uh, the first interstellar asteroid that came by, and then this comet. One of the things that stands out so remarkably, as would, as you said, a planet coming from outside, is that they come in from some totally different angle, which people don't think in 3D in that way. Yeah, you're right. I think people do, and we've seen the diagrams in the books, you know, when we grew up looking at our science books, and the solar system is like a racetrack, it's very flat. Uh, Well, the planets pretty much adhere to generally flat, but not quite. Uh, They're tipped to varying degrees. I think Mercury is uh, tipped the greatest at about seven degrees to the plane of the ecliptic. And, of course, Pluto, back in the days when it was a planet, uh, was tipped even more. I think it's 17. Uh, But, uh, yes, asteroids and especially comets are at all different angles. They're tipped at 20, they can come in, they can go retrograde in the opposite direction. So the solar system is more like a buzzing hive of bees where they're coming in from all different angles. If you consider all of the small objects that it's populated with, what sets interstellar objects apart is the fact that their orbits aren't elliptical. In other words, they're not a closed orbit where they would return, but rather their orbits are hyperbolic. So it's in once and out, baby. In once, out, and you're done. It's a drive-by. Just boom. It's just, it yeah. really is. It's just a drive-by. They take one <laughs> selfie and they're out. Matt, in your mind, when you when you think about this story, what does Nibiru look like? Well, um, I think Bob's right that it should be, uh, it would be an outer system body. So something Pluto-like, right? So uh, an icy yeah, ball. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As it starts heating up, it'll pick up a little bit of an atmosphere um, as, uh, as some of the, the material changes into a gaseous state. So it might have a little comet-style tail tracking it. Um, I'd imagine it's weirdly shaped, you know, potato-like, maybe more shaped like an asteroid than a proper planet. I don't have any reason for that. Just feels more ominous, I think, to see it tumbling through space at us. You have a potato phobia. <laughs> Many traumas. Well, just think of the, you know, you ever look closely at a potato? Those eyes staring back at you. <laughs> if you look too close, you might just have a bad dream. So, no, I, I and I would agree with Matt too that it would be. I'd, 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 I'd go all the way and call it a sphere, though, because even Pluto is a sphere for its small size. And it's supposed to be, I don't think I mentioned this before, on an orbit uh, that lasts 3,600 years. So this is an object oh. that truly goes far, far out into the deep solar system. Let's We're going to call it the Oort cloud. So maybe it's really much more cometary, in which case it would be something like a potato or a dumbbell, a bowling pin type shaped object. And so we can imagine anything. But given that all those objects so far that we're aware of that have come from that great of a distance to have such a tremendously long orbital period, 3,600 years, those are all comet-like objects. So they would generally be small and icy. And by the way, the Anunnaki gods are supposed to inhabit this object too. This is according to the myth or the interpretation in that book. So they would be traveling on this extremely icy object for a great, for a very long time. So they better have some excellent heating there. Perhaps they've got something like the ethane and methane that you find on Titan. They can heat their stoves with on Nuburu. Although they're gods, <laughs> so, you know. Well, they're gods. They could just make it just right there on the spot. 
<laughs> I'm going to say, I think you're right. It, it would be Pluto. It, it could be a small planet, but it would be a planet. I feel like when people think of the story, they are thinking of a planet, a round yeah, thing. Yeah, they think of a, mm-hmm, a round thing. Now, the truth is, though, there must be planets flying around, right? Because the the belief is, am I correct, that when the solar system was formed, there may very well have been other planets uh, or protoplanets that were kicked out by Jupiter yes. and other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and innumerable comets. And that's probably where Borisov came from, too. It was probably a, a bad day for Borisov around whatever star it orbited. It got knocked by a bigger planet. You know, there was some horrible gravitational interaction, kicked out of the solar system, came by us. And I can only imagine there must be thousands of comets that were maybe millions that were ejected through gravitational interactions in the early solar system as the planets were migrating to their current positions. Uh, Many of those were swept out into the Kuiper belt and so on, but some were ejected. And they're zipping by other stars right now as we speak. When we talk about planets getting kicked out, for instance, of the solar system, this is something I think uh, a lot of people don't understand. Even at the, and the reason I know that is because I start to feel a sense inside me of like, I kind of I know that. I kind of have an understanding of how that works, but not really. So, Matt, how, how would... Um, here's what I'm going to imagine, that this planet, the odds of, the, of Nibiru coming and actually crashing into the planet is extremely slim. So before right. we consider that uh, penultimate or ultimate uh, end to the story, apocalyptic end to the story, if it grazes the Earth at a certain distance, the Earth will potentially be kicked out of the solar system. And what? So what does that mean? Has has that? Work? Yeah, if it's it's big enough, it would need to be a huge. That's right. It would need to be a big thing. So a Pluto-sized <laughs> object isn't going to do that. Um, usually, when we talk about things getting. Um, uh, kicked out of a, a gravitational system like the the solar system. It's not usually a single close approach, but it's a little gravitational wobble repeated over long periods of time that add up. Um, and then you get this kind of chaotic phenomena. So it looks like it flies out suddenly, but it's not a, a single encounter that does it. Uh, it takes a lot of uh, uh, nudging over time. So for instance, if Jupiter had kicked out, and let's say there had been a planet where the asteroid belt is now, mm-hmm. and we say Jupiter kicked it out. What might, how long might that have taken, and what exactly would that have looked like? So it sounds like it's not just a one-time, like, oh, Jupiter and this planet got close, and whoop, there goes the planet. Yeah, it's more like, um, let's see here, uh, like you're uh, whirling, you, you tie a rock on a string and whirl it around your head. And it picks up speed and picks up speed and picks up speed and then finally you let it go and it whirls off. So it would be more like that, where if you're watching that planet over long periods of time, presumably thousands or millions of years, um, you would notice it starting to slowly wobble. And uh, so the eccentricity of its orbit would get weirder and weirder. And And then there would be a moment at which it would depart suddenly and suddenly meaning years and zoom off into the darkness yeah yeah like with the jupiter for instance in the asteroid belt the reason why no planet formed there even though there was enough material to form a small planet is because as that material tried to come together jupiter's repeated orbiting you know every 12 years around the sun kept stirring up the material and preventing it from gravitationally sticking together and so as a result, we have just the parts and pieces that have been there since the beginning of the solar system. Uh, and probably in that, I'm thinking, Matt, too, that some of that material could have been ejected. Um, Jupiter to this day still does crazy stuff, like if asteroids crash into one another, let's say somewhere in the asteroid belt. Jupiter's gravity, its repeated swings around the sun, that gravity can pump up the eccentricity which is the shape, how how elliptical the orbit of the object is, it can pump its eccentricity up and send it on an orbit that will make it pass by the Earth. And then it becomes mm-hmm. a near-Earth asteroid or potentially hazardous object. Jupiter's good at doing this with parts and pieces. So it's responsible for some, for certainly some of the potentially hazardous asteroids that we see to this day and discover all the time. 
Yeah. Now, and I would guess statistically, and this is this is one of those subtle things that when I'm reading about what astronomers do and how they think, I find really helpful uh, and fascinating. In other words, if so we can certainly imagine we we keep finding exoplanets all the time who and and because yes. they're the easiest kind to see for for, for the, using the method we use at the moment uh, we find jupiter sized planets like there's zillions of them so in those solar systems it's possible that there was a planet that was able to form and then got kicked out by you know the, some of these planets have three three jupiters spinning around very close to the sun all kinds of crazy things and yeah. so but for the, true. the the amount of empty space in space is so huge that the odds of a planet flying through space and hitting the earth basically an incredibly tiny object like the odds oh. are just insane but if yeah. that were to happen the interesting leap I, I think that the astronomers would be able to take is right they would say okay well then this must happen a lot is that right? How, how does that work, that sort of statistical thinking? It's a statistical thing that you can calculate, right? So there's so many bodies in our solar system, say asteroids, um, and their uh, orbits have this particular patterns of variation. So given that variation, um, how long would you have to wait before one of them intersected with the Earth's orbit? And you can calculate that, and it turns out, for instance, to be on the order of millions of years. And some people have pointed out that it tends to line up with mass extinctions, too, right? So maybe that's something that we should ponder deeply. Um, but the problem with statistics generally, so these are what we would call low-end statistics, right? We don't have many sample sizes of things smashing into other things. So just because something is unlikely doesn't mean it won't happen. That's what I, nature is just amazing. I, I was looking at the numbers, uh, Matt, that you brought mm -hmm. that up. And of these potentially hazardous, uh, first, we should probably define what a, a PHA is, right? Potentially hazardous asteroid. Sure. Um, that would be an object, an asteroid, or potentially a comet, too, that measures about 460 feet across. And that approaches within 4.5 million miles of the Earth's orbit. And you might wonder, where do they get that number 460 feet across? <laughs> and it comes from, it's the estimate that uh, an asteroid that size would cause a regional disaster should it strike the Earth. Statistically speaking, it's estimated that one of these asteroids, these potentially hazardous objects, would strike the Earth once every 10,000 years or so. So just to give a little perspective on how frequently that happens. And I usually use, I try to use those statistics sometimes to calm the nerves of people who say, well, I'm sure it, I, it's going to hit the earth. I heard it was going to hit the earth or it was going to pass this close to the earth. And I say, well, let's, let's give it some time because that's the main thing about asteroids anyway, is that sometimes when a new asteroid, a hazardous object is discovered, there's maybe a couple of percent chance that it might strike the Earth. But that's only because we don't know its orbit precisely. Over time, in every single instance that I've seen so far, that number has shrunk, shrank down smaller and smaller and smaller. You might remember the asteroid Apophis that was supposed to strike the Earth sometime later this century. Astronomers took a really hard look at it got a really precise orbit, and now it's going to miss the Earth. Maybe some people are disappointed about that. You're like, yeah. yes, this is the one. <laughs> Finally. That's another part oh, but, of these stories, too, is that there is a glee to oh, come on. apocalyptic. <laughs> it, it is. I, whatever it is, we're built to anticipate it. Again, I think it goes back ultimately to the need for survival. We have to live. Uh, but yeah, there is glee at apocalyptic. You know, Whatever it is, we like to see the slate wiped clean. <laughs> yes, yeah, this cosmic reset button. Yeah. It is a cosmic reset. Or anyone who grew up grew up uh, building uh, with Legos or anything, you, at the end you have to blow it up or smash it. 
I mean, that's just oh yeah, it's the natural. Hey, and hey, here in Duluth, what do you do when you build your snow fort? Uh, you're done with it. <laughs> you you just bash the thing to half. Here comes Niburu. <laughs> <laughs> here it is, finally. Honey, get in the house. So let's we're going to jump to that at the towards the end of our episodes as we approach the end here. I like to hit the fast forward button, stream fast forward, and let's say uh, Niburu does hit the earth. And and we'll have to give it a size. So let's let's say it's as big as um, Pluto. Now, actually, Pluto, what isn't Pluto compared to our moon? I hear something like Pluto and the moon may are comparable in size, or even something odd about that. Yes, uh, I don't Pluto's know the exact. Like seven hundred miles across, so yeah. much smaller than the moon. Smaller than the moon. Oh, see, that's interesting. So it may turn out. Right, so let's say it. Let this is a kind of interesting scenario, ever so slightly more realistic. <laughs> yeah, so let's say it's Pluto size. It means it's smaller than the moon. And actually, the moon, the moon is you know that's something we can imagine. We can see that. And so, the moon was formed, we believe, when a planet did hit the Earth. So a planet did hit the Earth once. Isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's our best guess. This is what yeah. we've been talking about all the while, and yet it actually happened. Or according to the best theory, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so actually, that interestingly, that would lower the odds even more by some enormous amount, wouldn't it? It's like, hey, it happened once. And it only happened during, you know, an extremely um, violent period of the forming of the solar yeah, system. Yeah, that's the thing. It happened during a super busy time, too, during the formation of the solar system, when there was all kinds of stuff, much more currently around, yes. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that this Pluto is coming. One outcome, it sounds like, might be we get another moon. Well, not us, whoever. Yeah, that's right. Whatever critters evolve a billion years from now. Yeah, Yeah, 1,500-mile-an object, if it hit the Earth, if it was like that, of course, the object that struck the Earth back then, four and a half billion years ago or so, that would have been apparently the size of Mars, is what I've read. So this would be quite a bit smaller, but nonetheless, it would be enough if it struck the earth to rip off a good part of the crust right and that would it would be fascinating to think that we would have a repeat scenario that it would form a ring around the planet and eventually that ring of material could coalesce to form a moon of course you've got an icy object too that's coming in so it's quite fragile compared yeah. to, let's say, this rocky body, the Mars-like body that struck the Earth so long ago. So the effects would be quite different. What do you think, Matt, would happen there? Well, so it's, um, I think you're right that we probably wouldn't get a full-on crust-cracking, hurling debris into uh, a, a new set of rings. But we would certainly get a, uh, a KT extinction-style debris mm-hmm. hurled up into the atmosphere and blocking off the the sun so certainly a uh, an ecological disaster even if not a geological one and K- kt you mean the the the, uh, the, the extinction that killed the dinosaurs yep and a whole lot more it wasn't just dinosaurs that died it was like a lot yeah of but others. we only care about the dinosaurs that's right, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. good point <laughs> right that's the only thing we care about but yeah i mean it certainly would be an extinction type event and and it would be an event that would undoubtedly wipe out humanity or the vast, you know, most of humanity, I think, if it was a Pluto sized object. Yeah. Yes. And, and the interesting thing is, I think, as, as they, when they talk about that incident that formed the moon, I, I think what they say is that the Earth was sterilized. And there's an interesting question that had life begun on the Earth before then, we don't know. We have no idea, I think. It was very early in the Earth's formation. It may have been too early for life, but again, who knows? Yes. Yeah. But is it, again, the image I always have is uh, probably an image that comes from any number of covers of like Astounding Stories <laughs> magazines, one of those things where the Earth is hit by something and then breaks up into like big pieces. In fact, I know if you Google, you know, exploding planet, it. you see, right? It's like these big chunks. I can see it right now. Yes. Like a piece of, like a loaf of, bread or a cookie more like a cookie a spherical mm-hmm. cookie but like right broken into giant pieces and in fact uh when you look at artists conceptions of what happened when that mars size object hit the earth and formed the moon it's actually more of a 
it becomes a very liquid almost right it, it, the, everything melts it seems it does yeah, that's the, right. the extreme the temperatures impact. from from the right. impact um yeah. scanning. and also at the when the mars like object hit us early on um a lot of the planet was still molten ah. so it's uh yeah fluid dynamics gets weird at high velocities and temperatures and things so. Like you go to all the trouble, we probably will solve the whole climate warm climate situation. Uh, we'll end the nuclear weapon nightmare, and then Nibiru comes along, and you know, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you've done. All right. The last situation I want to imagine is the Earth being grazed by this planet, like that just doesn't um, destroy it, but it comes very, very, very close. Here's a question I've always had. Would we feel the a pull towards that object as it went overhead? Oh, so it didn't strike the Earth at all; just passed right. Really it got really close. Really close. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it de- depends exactly how close. But the answer is almost certainly no. We wouldn't feel anything <laughs> about it. Um, it would feel the Earth's gravity with great intensity, though. And one of the things wow. that would probably happen is it would break up into pieces as it went by. So this is something we saw happen with um, Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 back in the 1990s. This is the, the comet that's um, ended up hitting Jupiter is on its first sort of pass around Jupiter. It gets broken up by the tidal forces and then the individual bits smash in. We'd probably get a, a spectacular light show as not just one object zooms through our sky, but a whole trail of them all lit up and outgassing and crumbling into smaller pieces. Um, it would be pretty spectacular. Well, I'm definitely hoping that Nuburu comes by because I would love to see that. Yes. Uh, it is true that the, you're right. It would break up into pieces because if we consider that this is coming from a great distance, it's a cometary-like object, an icy object, these things are fragile and they tend to break up. That's why comets often when they pass at perihelion, when they're closest to the sun, the gravity of the sun combined with the heat can caused the comet to fracture to break up and so as matt suggests it could become a spectacular sky show even though you would not feel a tug on you you wouldn't you wouldn't be lifted off the ground i know you would like to be lifted off the ground even better even better it comes so close that you could step onto the other planet just jump yeah yeah like you know like the cowboys jump from one horse to another it'd be like that it'd be amazing i see i'm 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 taking this one I'm switching to I the express. The, I love where you're taking this. Thing is, by that time, we will have jetpacks. That's true. In which case, yeah. you can just zoom up yeah. to the surface and fly on a piece of vaporizing comet ice. It's a beautiful thought. Sounds like a Fast and Furious movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah right. There we go. Fast and Furious. That's great. 4,000. And it would all begin as it began for the dinosaurs as a point of light in the sky. Mm-hmm. And when, and, and anybody with a small telescope can look at an asteroid. And when you see an asteroid, the brightest one, uh, Vesta, you can even see with your naked eye from a dark sky. But if you look at an asteroid, it is a point of light. And every once in a while, I remind myself when I see them that that's how it all began for the dinosaurs. Until the light got brighter and brighter and then finally assumed a shape. And then the shape got bigger and bigger and then it was all over, just like that. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating way to connect with a bit of ancient history and that amazing aspect of nature that will recur again sometime in the future. We will get hit. That we know sometime. But just not, not no asteroid we know of now is on its way, nor is there a Nibiru that we know of. Yeah. Right. right. That we know of, dot, dot, dot. That's enough dot, dot, dot. for the Discovery <laughs> Channel. <laughs> Bob, you will be receiving a a finger puppet. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if you know of a great scientist or science fiction character. I'll look at him. Maybe I I think I think we have some astronomers in there. Wonderful. Yes, it's it's a wonderful little finger puppet. If you submit an idea to us, by the way, which you can email uh, at feedback at whattheif.com, or you can go to our website whattheif.com 
slash contact. Just click on the contact button. Uh, so you send in an idea for a show. If we ended up using it, you will become a super iffer at Bob today. You are raised to super iffer status and you will receive a finger puppet. Also, the Unemployed Philosophers Guild has been offering a 10% discount to, to uh, everyone who's been listening for the past uh, couple of years. Thank you again, the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, for supporting us. They are the makers of, among other things, planet plates, lightweight melamine plates featuring watercolor portraits of our solar system that you could eat on. So, you know, you could be your own Niburu. Uh, this planet, this solar system so clean you could eat off it. You can find these awesome plates and more at philosophersguild.com, the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, unconventional gifts for your unconventional friends. And Baba, very much thank you for joining us as one of our newest unconventional friends. And you will be receiving a, a, a delightful finger puppet. Uh, Bob, you want to just tell us again the title of the book and uh, where can people buy that? Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been really a lot of fun. And I am looking forward to that finger puppet because I don't have a single one in my finger puppet collection. It will be the first. A pioneer. <laughs> it may come with a little flag that it plants you know, <laughs> right. on your dresser. <laughs> I have a small astronaut walking on the moon, but no finger puppet. Um, my So thank you very much for that. My book is called Urban Legends from Space, The Biggest Myths About Space Demystified. And it's available, well, you can get it online at uh, Amazon and Indie Books and Barnes & Noble. It's also available in real bookstores that you can walk into, uh, particularly Barnes & Noble. Right on, right on. Follow us on Twitter uh, at What The If Show. And Bob, do you, are, do you have any social media links or uh oh i do yeah i uh, i've been writing a blog about the night sky for more than a decade and i usually keep it updated about three to four times a week and it's called astro bob so if people want to know what's happening in the night sky they can just google astro bob and it'll take you right there that's fantastic and i think did you also say you're on the radio um, I'm on KUMD radio every other Tuesday. KUMD FM, that's uh, out of the University of Minnesota, Duluth. And that's at 825 in the morning. <laughs> so getting the word out, uh, I'm an evangelist for the night sky. I just find it so beautiful. And I think looking up is, it's a wilderness up there that's available to a lot of people. And it just requires looking up now and again and paying attention to what's up there. And who knows, uh, the next person who looks up might be the person that sees Niburu flying in. <laughs> we, can be exciting. Yeah. we can only hope. Yeah, yeah. one of my favorite expressions uh, from the UFO community, watch the skies. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Matt, do you have anything uh, coming up you want to give a shout out about? Um, no, I'm just grading papers for the next month or so. Oh, well, good luck to your students. <laughs> <laughs> yep. How are they looking? Are they uh, students doing okay this year? They're spectacular. That's wonderful. Leave us a review if you haven't uh, already. We really appreciate that. That helps the show a lot. So on whatever pod catcher podcasting app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Play or Stitcher or Spotify, any of those other things, they all have a way to leave a review. If you don't know how and you would like to help us out uh, by doing so, but you're not sure how to do it, just uh, send me an email, feedback at whattheif.com, and I will uh, give you some tips. I'll lead you through that. So, Bob, if you would join us on our, our uh, sacred ritual, uh, which is it's a little bit therapeutic, although it, it, it fills us with some, some anxiety, but we try to release it by screaming. And that anxiety comes from, uh, well, Matt, you, I haven't had you explain it. You, you're very good at this. How, how would you describe this this terror, this inner terror? Oh, it's, um, it's what uh, Blaise Pascal back in the 17th century called the terror of the infinite spaces, uh, in which the, uh, the, the sheer number of possible worlds out there uh, strike existential horror into our soul. Because they could all be coming our way. Because <laughs> they could all be coming our way, right? It might be Nibiru, it might be a giant marshmallow, right? And uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so he started this whole thing, Blaise Pascal. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and look, he's right. 
there are already over like 4,100 exoplanets discovered, and that's just that's just a little bit, you know, on the yeah. head of the. And that's right. He was already people. freaking out about it 400 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. And and uh, when we think about what show, what our, what our show topic will be for next week, we have no idea, and and the uh, the possible ifs that may be coming our way are even far more numerous than the number of planets, which are definitely coming our way. So, you know, put on a helmet or something. Doggles. Safety first. Um, but when we imagine these, the, the infinite possibilities of what we can be doing and which one will we choose, we cannot help but scream the name of the show. Longtime listeners, you know it. Join us. If you haven't done it before, listen to this and then replay it and join us. And we can all share in the fear, the terror, the awe of what may happen next, next when we scream? What? what? The if, 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 if.